Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing Chapter 6, which is the Middle Way, Walking the Middle Way. We've been on this journey for about six weeks now, where we started the group learning program, kind of restarting that from where we left off in our past group learning program, which took six months to go all the way through this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And students have been progressing week by week through this book to the point where now we've arrived at chapter six. And we've been on this six week journey where we've gone through some various chapters and content in the book. In chapter three, we talked about what is enlightenment or Nibbana. We talked about this mental state that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy that is permanent, that the mind is being trained through your independent journey, through this self-pursuit of learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha, and through doing so and applying these teachings to see that they're truth rather than believing them, you're seeing the truth so that you can gain wisdom through learning and practicing, you can progress towards this permanent mental state of enlightenment. And we discussed that in a lot of detail in chapter three. And then in chapter four, we talked about what is the problem with the unenlightened mind, the primary problem, which is craving this mental longing, this yearning, this strong eagerness where the mind wants to hold on to things and expects things to be permanent. The mind wants things to be a certain way. And when they're not that way, the mind experiences discontentedness. Or in some cases, when the mind does get what it wants, it experiences this happiness and this excitement and this elation. And that causes problems and challenges in the mind as well, all based on this craving desire attachment, which can be eliminated through training the mind to eliminate this mental longing with strong eagerness. And in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Path being the path to enlightenment, to completely eliminate the discontent mind. And it's the Eightfold Path that will guide a practitioner to progressing towards this mental state of enlightenment, where the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So over the last five or six weeks, We've been on this journey of kind of pulling back some of the teachings of the Buddha and really getting into the real heart of what the Buddha taught. First, you know, with the chapter one, kind of providing this bridge where 
you understand that the teachings aren't about belief and yet there's all these other teachers who kind of did share teachings about belief that kind of tapped into some of these same universal truths or these same natural laws of existence and we talked in chapter two even about why even study Gautama Buddha's teachings and then of course we progressed through chapter three four and five which is about enlightenment the four noble truths and the eightfold path so today we arrive at chapter six which is kind of a shorter chapter not quite as meaty as some of the chapters that we've already been studying and it kind of gives the mind a little bit of a break this week to really just kind of take in kind of a real generalized teaching something really simple but yet when you understand it it can have a profound effect in the way that you progress in your life and then next week and beyond we're going to get into some really deep teachings some more and really kind of start diving in and pulling back the covers on some more of the real core teachings of Gautama Buddha but this week we're going to just kind of pause for a bit and talk about this real kind of simple basic generalized teaching called the middle way and the teaching on the middle way is something that can kind of guide all the other things that you're doing in your life where the four noble truths the eightfold path the five precepts the three poisons you know once we get into a lot of these other really deep teachings they're quite really deep but i think here what you're going to see with the buddhist teachings is there's something just very very subtle that he shares but this subtlety and the simplicity in this teaching actually makes it so profound, which is one of the hallmarks of Gautama Buddha's teachings is taking these natural laws and describing them in such a simple, clear, direct, and concise way that they are then just so profound because you can use them in everyday life. So today we're going to talk about this middle way and help you see how you can apply it to your life. And the way that the Buddha came to this teaching about the middle way is in his observation of an instrument that was played in the region of the world that he was in, where he was born in today, which is modern day Nepal. And then he also spent time in Northeast India, which is what we call that area today because there's a border. But during his lifetime, those borders didn't exist. He observed this instrument called a sitar, which is a stringed instrument. And what he noticed about this instrument is that when the string was too loose and someone plucked it, it didn't really sound nice. It was like, right? The instrument didn't play well. But then when the string was too tight and someone plucked it, it also didn't sound well. It's like ding, right? It didn't have that right sound that the instrument was made for, that beautiful resonated sound that this instrument was really meant to play. But it was only when the string was tuned perfectly in the middle and when someone plucked it, boom, you got a really nice tone out of the instrument and the instrument plays beautifully the way that the instrument was intended to play. Well, the Buddha noticed that the mind was exactly the same way. That the mind, when it's holding on to things too tightly, 
and it's grasping too tightly that the mind doesn't function well. But also if the mind holds onto things too loosely or the mind is too loose, it also doesn't play well either. It's only when the mind is right in the middle that it performs optimally, that it functions optimally. And that's what his teachings are meant to do. Through learning the Four Noble Truths and practicing that, through learning and practicing the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings that I'm going to share with you in this program, essentially what you're doing is you're bringing the mind to the middle. Because in the middle, the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Whereas if it's holding on to things really, really tightly, then essentially the mind isn't going to perform well because it's so bound up and it's holding things so tightly. And conversely, if we hold things just kind of loosely or not even holding them at all, just kind of let things go, then the mind's not going to perform well either. So it's this middle way, which is the goal of practice, is to bring the mind to the middle. This is just the real simplicity of the teaching. That's really all it is, is just the idea of bringing things to the middle. And now the real potency and the real profoundness is how you apply this to your daily life through various examples that we can talk about. And Max has a few and I have a few and you guys might have a few as well. Essentially, the way that you can apply this teaching of the middle way is things in your daily life. Let's just say you're a student or you are an employee and you're working somewhere. If you went to your job or you invested time and effort into studying and you were just like super serious and you spent 16, 18 hours a day, you drove to work or you drove to school in a rush, in a hurry, you bolted out the door and every single meeting, every single interaction, you're just trying to be on top of it and you're just super serious about this job. Well, that's not going to lead to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind because you're holding on to it too tightly. You're going to crush it. It's almost like sabotaging it. And this can make the work environment or your school environment amongst your coworkers and your classmates and your teachers, it can make it very difficult and very problematic because you're trying to hold it too tightly. But conversely, if you were just kind of haphazardly applying effort for school or work and really didn't really kind of give a care much about what you were doing and the type of products that you were producing, the type of results that you were achieving in school or work, and you just kind of like went about it lackadaisical, that wouldn't produce the best results either. It's only when you find this middle or this middle way that you're going to be performing optimally, where you're not holding it too tightly and too seriously, but you're also not holding it too loosely. And this middle isn't something that I can tell you where it's at or the Buddha tells you where's the middle. It's something that you have to find. It's something that you have to navigate and figure out. Right now, in various situations that you find yourself, whether it's work or school, whether it's personal relationships with your partner, with your children, with your friends, with your family, 
whether it's how you care for your house or how you care for your car, or how you care for your physical body, whether it's how you take care of your physical body, all these different things, a litany of things that we do in life, you know, whether it's how generous we are or how much we invest or how much we save, whether it's how much loving kindness or compassion we share versus how much time we spend on our own development, all these various issues that we face in our life, there is this middle. And only you are going to be able to find that middle. And only you are going to know when you're at that middle. But what you need to do is you need to look in your life at things that you're holding too tightly and things that you're not really putting any interest or care into at all that maybe you should be so that you can bring that to the middle. And this thing that you're holding too tightly, you can kind of let go and you can bring that to the middle and pursue it as a goal, as an interest, as an objective, but not so seriously and not so loosely, but as a nice goal and progressing forward in life. Because in doing so, you can then be successful. So if we are looking for this middle, we have to have mindfulness. We have to have awareness of mind and we have to see what the results are of our daily activities. If we see ourselves really anxious and really yearning and eager and kind of feeling bottled up inside, like we're holding on to things and we feel almost tension in our chest and in our mind, this is something that you're probably holding on to too tightly. And therefore, it's going to cause the mind to be discontent because you're holding it too tightly. You're going to experience sadness or anger, frustration, or some other emotion or feeling because you're holding it too tightly. And then likewise, if you're just kind of lackadaisical about something and not really showing any care to your children and their homework or your partner, you're not really caring for your house or your your own physical body, your own well-being, you're not showing generosity and sharing with other people around you, then this is going to lead to problems as well. And you might feel kind of empty inside, like you're not really contributing something to others. And this is going to lead to discontentedness. So you've got to bring that to the middle. And it's only when you find this middle that you'll kind of really understand where that is and it'll make sense to you and you'll feel like you're in the groove, so to speak. What will probably most likely happen now that you're aware of this is something that you're holding too tightly. As you start letting go, it's going to feel strange. It's going to feel odd because you're not used to that. You're used to holding this thing tightly. So as you start to let go, it's going to feel uncomfortable. And you might even kind of overshoot the middle and you might kind of hold it kind of too loosely. So you kind of have to weave and weave and weave and weave and weave and weave and then finally get to that middle. And then once you find that middle on any particular topic or any particular situation that you're involved in, any type of experience, once you find that middle, that middle is impermanent. It's not permanent. It's not like once you find it, that it's always going to be the same. So you've got to have this mindfulness, this awareness of mind to see when you're holding things too tight to kind of let go and slack up a bit, 
but don't slack up too much. And then for things that you're slacking up on and not really applying much effort and dedication to, to apply a little bit more effort to bring that to the middle. And then once you find that middle and you're in the groove, you've got to have mindfulness and awareness of mind to be able to stay in that groove because it's going to be shifting and changing. So what we see is this middle, it's not just a straight line that once you find it, you're going to be on it forever. It's like this pathway towards this mountain that you might kind of hit the path. You might be in the middle and you're kind of walking and it's a pretty straight direction, but then there's kind of twists and turns in this path. And that's where the impermanence is kind of affecting where this middle is on any given topic. And you've got to be able to ebb and flow with that. So let me give you an example. Let's just say that you're a really charitable person and you tend to be very freely giving to various charities in your community. And that might be something that you've always done and you've really valued that. The community has really valued that. They see you as somebody who gives your time, your effort, your energy, maybe your financial resources. And you've been very giving over the last few years. Well, that's where you've been and you found that middle and you have enough resources, time and effort to take care of yourself and your family and also be giving to the community as well. And you found that middle and you've been there for a few years and it feels really comfortable and it feels really great. Well, remember, the mind's going to want to hold on to this and the mind's going to want to think that that's permanent. But in reality, what's going to happen is variables are going to start to change your family is going to change. Your children are going to get older, maybe need more time. Maybe your partner needs more time or less time. Maybe your job changes. Maybe your income changes. Maybe you need to start spending more time on yourself. Maybe you get sick. Maybe you start having some health issues as well. And what can happen is, is if the mind is kind of locked into being this giving person who has found the middle and you found your groove, but now all these things start changing around you, the mind can now kind of yearn to stay in this permanent middle and not have awareness of mind that this middle is actually fluctuating all the time. And now that your income has dropped or your needs to help your partner at home have increased, the mind doesn't recognize that and doesn't make the needed adjustments. And now the mind yearns to be in that same groove that it's always had. And it doesn't make the changes to now help your partner, help your family or help yourself or pull back maybe your expenses a bit so that you're not maybe giving as much, but you're kind of investing in your family because your family really needs you right now. So this middle, we've got to find the middle and we've got to walk that middle way. But then we've got to realize that it's always changing. It's always being modified because of impermanence. But the mind is going to want to hold on because once you find that middle, it's going to feel really good. It's going to feel peaceful. It's going to feel content. And that's why the middle way is so important. But if the mind holds on to it and it doesn't use good wisdom and decision making to now ebb and flow as things change, then you're going to potentially be overlooking needs in other places 
because the mind's still holding on to what the middle was six months ago or three months ago or three years ago. If the mind is still holding on to that middle and trying to make that permanent, then it's not going to be able to ebb and flow and walk this path towards enlightenment where it's just consciously aware of where it needs to be at any one given time. Okay? The middle, you know, we think that it's right here walking this first part of the path and the mind wants to hold on to that. It wants to take a straight line straight to the mountain. But what we've got to realize is this middle way actually fluctuates and it ebbs and flows. So we've got to have mindfulness and awareness to know that we need to ebb and flow with this and not try to take this direct path to the mountain. Once we get on that path, it's not going to be a straight line path. It's going to ebb and flow. And that's where we need to apply practice to find the middle, but then be comfortable and aware that it's going to change and just always stay on the middle as we walk this path. So I would just pause here. This is essentially what I have to share with you on the middle way. And we can talk about different examples in your life, different situations that you're encountering. Maybe you're not quite sure if you're in the middle or not on various situations. There is even a question that came into the Facebook group today or yesterday about someone who's now embarking on this path of enlightenment. And they didn't say it this way, but they were talking about how they really wanted to pursue this path and they were really eager to pursue it, but they could feel themselves just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and kind of wanting to get to the destination. And they were kind of having trouble to see the middle. They didn't say that they were having trouble to see the middle, but when I read the text, it was obvious that this person who had submitted the question is just really eager and interested to pursue this path, which is great. But even things like learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings, you got to find the middle with that too. Because if you've got work and you've got school or you've got children or you've got a partner or you've got a house to take care of, you've got this physical body to take care of, you know, you definitely need to be doing meditation and learning the Buddhist teachings to progress on this path. But you've got to balance it with all of these other things that you've got in your life. And this is some of the modern language that we use that refers to what the Buddha was talking about with the middle way. As we talk about in modern language, we say we've got to live a balanced lifestyle, right? That's the language that we use. The Buddha was talking about it as finding the middle, the middle way, because the mind will perform optimally when you find this middle way. And when the mind gets onto it, what's going to happen is you're going to want to latch onto it and you're going to think that's permanent, but it's not. It's great that you find the middle on any one given topic, but then you've got to be comfortable with this ebbing and flowing as you progress forward in life. And as impermanence happens, you've got to be able to see that and you've got to be able to make changes in various parts of your life. So let me just pause here, see if you guys have any questions on what I shared. And if you have any questions on things that you're currently doing in your life and you're just kind of curious how to find that middle, I can kind of help you and guide you. But like I mentioned, only you are going to really truly know where that middle is 
but I can kind of give you some pointers and some guidance on how to find it and kind of generally know that when you've actually hit it. We have a question from Roberts on YouTube. He says, I can struggle to not be busy. And yesterday I took a minute to sit down for the day and I found that to be somewhat difficult. Finding this middle way between being busy and sitting is something I'm working with. And what I'm asking is your experience in finding this balance. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we grow up with, especially in Western culture, is that go, 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 right? That go get them. You got to go, 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 go. And we kind of occupy our life with all these various things, all these events and situations and experiences. And we're not really taught how to relax. That's a real skill is being taught how to relax, the ability of learning how to just relax. It wasn't until I moved to Thailand that I actually learned how to relax and taught myself how to relax through observing how the Thais do it. The Thais work and they're very hard workers. They will work and work and work and work and work. But when they relax, they know how to relax and they turn the mind off. Where for me, when I was living in Western culture, it was very difficult because I would go to work and I was on the ball and I was work, 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 work. Even in the car ride to work, right? I was thinking about work. Even in the shower, getting ready to go to work, I was already thinking about work and all the meetings that I was gonna have. In the car ride, once I got there, it was work, 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 right? You got to kind of prove your worth. And then all the way home in the car ride, analyzing, you know, how did I do at work today and thinking about all the things that I'm going to do tomorrow when I get to work. And then when you go home, the mind is still on full tilt, right? It's like still going and going and going. And that can cause a lot of discontentedness. And the mind being in that condition, it can't maintain that permanently. But the mind wants to because we train it that way. We train it and our culture is kind of set up to incentivize us and teach us and tells us that that's what success is. That success is that go, 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 nose to the grindstone. But that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable at all. And what you have to do is you have to train yourself. And Robert, it's great that you did that yesterday, is start to train yourself to let go and train yourself how to relax and just be at home or be at the pool or be at the park or go get a massage or take a walk around the lake or around the neighborhood or whatever it is, is just be alone. In Western culture, a lot of times, we're taught that being alone is like you're a loner or you're, you know, you don't have any friends. Here in Thailand, you see people alone all the time. I would say half the people at the mall are walking around alone because if we're always with other people, we're always engaged with some kind of content or some kind of input or some kind of people, how can we ever gather our own thoughts and kind of plug back in with other people if we're always with other people? So one of the things that I learned through observation here in Thailand is how people spend time alone and to really value that 
And that's where finding the middle is. Because if we're always around people, we're always plugged in, we're always go, 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 go at work, then we aren't in the middle. But if we're never around people and we never interact with others, then that's not in the middle either. So by finding that middle where you do spend time with people and interact with people and you do work, but then you also take some alone time to kind of gather your thoughts, kind of reflect on what's going on in life and just relax. That can then help you to be that much better when you're in your work or your personal relationships or what have you. But because your mind has been trained to go, 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 go all the time, that's what the mind craves as permanence because that's what it's become accustomed to. And that's what it knows to be the way that it wants to live. But as you know, that's not sustainable. But because the mind craves that heavy interaction and that go, 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 when you do try to step back and you do try to relax, the mind's going to feel uncomfortable because this is impermanence. We've gone from, or you went from, Robert, yesterday, from go, 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 to now trying to step back. And the mind's like, no, I don't like this. I'm not used to this. I don't like to just sit around and do nothing. I need to go, 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 go. But what you've got to do is you got to almost treat your mind like a third entity and say, no, you're not going to go, 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 go. You're going to sit right here and be comfortable and relax. And you're going to learn You're going to be trained how to relax. You're going to be trained how to sit here and do nothing and be comfortable with that. It's going to be uncomfortable the first many, many times that you do that with the mind. But the more that you do, you'll get more and more comfortable with it and you will have essentially trained your mind to relax. And this is something that we don't really learn growing up. Even my son, this weekend, he's been go, 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 go. And I took him over to the couch the other day and I sat him down and I said, Bailan, I want to teach you how to relax because he goes from daddy, I want to be doing, I want to do this, come play this with me. And then we finish that and he wants to bolt to the next thing and bolt to the next thing and bolt to the next thing. He's always got to be engaged in something. And I said, okay, today, I'm going to teach you how to relax. And that's not something that we're taught in Western culture is how to relax. So you're going to have to teach that to yourself. And when you do, it's going to feel uncomfortable because the mind craves that go, 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 because that's the permanence that it's trying to hold on to. It's got this longing, this strong eagerness to go, 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 but you've got to bring it to the middle and say, no, 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 you're not going to do that today. You're going to learn how to relax. And it's going to take time for the mind to get comfortable being in that relaxed position. But the more that you do it, the more comfortable it will get. And I suggest you try different activities. So if you were just lounging around at the house, okay, you did that yesterday. Maybe next time go for a walk by yourself. Go to the mall by yourself. Take yourself to the movies. Go to the movies by yourself. You don't see that hardly at all in Western culture, someone going to the movies by themselves. But here, that's what people do. Take yourself on a date, right? Fall in love with yourself, even though we know that there isn't a self, but fall in love with being alone. 
This is very important to teach the mind, train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, whether you're with people or you're alone. And this is also going to benefit you to train it that way, to be alone and be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy while you're alone. But it's also going to teach you how to relax in trying different activities and not necessarily just always defaulting to the same activity. You know, like I mentioned, go to the park, go for a walk around the lake, go take yourself to the movies, go to the mall, go shopping by yourself and just look around and don't even have a plan to go shopping or to necessarily buy something. Just walk around and look at things. Just take in the trees and the the mall and the people and the smiles and looking at people. This can be very, very beneficial for the mind that you don't necessarily have any other objective or goal, but just to be, to just exist, to just be satisfied with what is. Especially for men, we typically go out, we have a goal, right? This probably comes from our prehistoric days where we would go out, we would find the animal, we would hunt, we would kill it, we would drag it back and we would eat it. There was always this goal. But it's really beneficial for the mind to just go outside with no goal other than to have no goal and just relax and just walk around and look at things. This is very, very helpful for many different things. So it's going to feel uncomfortable, but it's a very valuable way to spend your time and train the mind to just be satisfied with what is. Thanks, David. I have a follow-up regarding finding the middle way at work, particularly how we go about work and the kind of activities we're actually doing at work. Because what I noticed is that when I used to work in a corporate environment, a lot of what would drive my behavior moment to moment and others was actually the expectations of other people on me, particularly superiors, but also colleagues, peers, and me wanting to meet those expectations. And the thing is that meeting others' expectations at work wasn't often actually the right thing to do in terms of performance at work or delivering value for the business. And I see that now, sometimes now that I am working for myself, and however, if we just never meet other people's expectations, then that's probably not going to produce fruitful outcomes either. So how can we apply the middle way in terms of how we go about our actual work activity? Yeah, expectations are kind of interesting because a lot of times we perceive expectations from others, but they may or may not even be the true expectations of others. But if you get caught up in trying to fulfill other people's expectations, then that's still craving and desire and attachment. And that's that mental longing with a strong eagerness to fulfill others' wishes. And if other people have expectations of you, then that's their expectations. That's their craving, desire, attachments. Now, if it's a boss that says, hey, I need this product delivered by X date, you know, that's one thing. But if it's your coworkers and or your family, you're never going to be able to meet other people's expectations. Never. Because even you understand their expectations fully, which we never really do. If we understand their expectations fully, as soon as we start trotting off on a path to fulfill those expectations, 
either we're halfway through with fulfilling the expectations or we actually fulfill the expectations, by that point, the expectations of whoever gave us the initial expectations has changed because of impermanence. And now we're off on a whole nother venture, a whole nother journey to try to fulfill this new set of expectations. So what people's lives can become is kind of just running around trying to fulfill everybody else's expectations. Another way to say that is running around trying to fulfill everyone else's craving, desire, attachments. And because their craving, desire, attachments are impermanent, as soon as you fulfill their expectations, then they're going to change. And now you're off to fulfilling something else. So what you have to do in the work environment, but also in the home environment too, is you have to chart your own path. You have to realize that you're on this independent journey. Sure, you live in a household. Sure, you work as part of a team of professionals or you're part of a corporation that you need to have certain goals and objectives that you pursue, but you have to have the ability to have wise decision-making where you're moving this goal forward based on your own understanding of how that goal needs to be fulfilled, that you're a, a thought leader, that you're, that you're charting your own course, but you're also a team player where you're working with other people. This is where the middle is, right? So like if you were all about your own self-interest and you didn't care about anybody at work and you were like a lone gunman, so to speak, that wouldn't work because you're part of a team. But also if you follow everybody's expectations all the time and you just do what everybody else wants to do and you just conform, then you're not really providing any value. There's no value add there because you're just conforming to what everyone else does. You're not really adding any value to the group. So that's where you've got to find this middle where you take some of your own goals, your own independent thoughts and objectives, and you bring that to the middle. But then also you bring some of that team camaraderie and working together as a team, and you bring that to the middle. And now you kind of chart this path where you don't put this pressure on yourself to fulfill everyone else's expectations, but you walk this middle way in applying value in your example as a professional. And that's what a real professional does is they don't just conform and just follow what everyone else does. And a professional also doesn't just become self-absorbed and just out for themselves and be very selfish. They are able to function within a group environment with group goals, but they also pursue things and add value as you're walking with the team. So that would be like the middle way in a professional environment. And you've got to get comfortable of finding that middle way because right now you may be very selfishly pursuing your own selfish goals or you might just be really into conforming with the group and just go along with whatever the group says, but that doesn't allow there to be progress. So by coming to the middle, now you can kind of more actively work towards some real accomplishments by using your self goals and doing it with teamwork. That's great. Thank you very much, David. Right. We have a question from Rhonda. She asks, I find sometimes in seeking balance, I have to put a burst of effort into something before it can calibrate to the middle. Simple example, a messy closet. 
you put heavy effort in to organize it one time and then you can enjoy the balance of maintenance is this the ebb and flow sure you can maybe kind of look at it that way that maybe certain efforts you need to really put in a lot of effort to kind of bring it to the middle right because using your example which is great to use really simple examples like this you know you were so lackadaisical about having a messy closet and it was just so messy and it got to the point where it was difficult to find anything and if you just kept on going down that path it would end up creating a lot of time and effort and energy that was probably wasted to try to find things that are in this closet so by kind of ramping up and spending a bunch of time to organize it now because you spent that time you can kind of move to the middle where now you can just kind of maintain it so that's a very good way to think about it and there's other things too like this middle it's not always as short and concise is what we're talking about with this closet here right so like as i was in america and i was building businesses i was putting a lot of work i would work you know 16 18 hours a day sometimes and then just work 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 and i was doing that for years and years and years at a time and sure there was a lot of income that was coming in that was helping me to acquire more and more money and then once I did that for an extended period of time, I was then able to start stepping back. So the last few years that I was in America and my son was born, I was able to start taking a step back and kind of finding a little bit more of the middle. And then when I came to Thailand, having made a bunch of money in America and being able to afford to buy a house in cash, now I don't really have to work for profit i can do things like have these classes and just work by donation because i've already done so much work in the past and made enough money that now i don't have to make that much money in my life right now so you might end up going through a few years of nose to the grindstone in order to try to get to that middle and that might just be what it takes to kind of keep your head above the water so to speak but if you can if you can modify your life to bring your expenses down and kind of see it more as a journey and rather than kind of almost kill yourself the way that i did for so many years in america rather than do that and kind of nose to the grindstone and then finally get to a point where i could find the middle my guidance to you my advice to you is to find that middle now on every single topic so that you don't go 10 15 years of nose to the grindstone and practically burn out like the way that i did and just have to close everything and move to thailand to kind of find the middle where you can actually find the middle where it might be that you don't go out as much or you buy a different type of clothing or you take this other type of job or whatever it is or you kind of organize your life in such a way where you can find the middle more readily and that's going to feel more comfortable to you and you're going to be able to get to this peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy more readily than if you go nose to the grindstone for 10 15 20 years hoping that that's going to pay off at some point in the future that rather than progressing through life like that is actively looking to find the middle now 
on all these different topics. And even in the Buddhist teaching, since we're kind of talking about finances here to a certain degree, the Buddha actually talked about this in his teachings. He talked about how someone whose income is below their expenses, he talked about how this is going to cause discontentedness and it's going to cause problems in your life. He did actually talk about this, believe it or not. And he talked about how we should organize our life in such a way that our income is above our expenses. And when you start knocking down your craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness to have the best clothes, the best mobile phone, go out and be seen at all the big events and have the best car and the best pair of shoes and the best jewelry. When you knock down that craving, when you knock down that self-image that you're trying to hold up, you'll actually realize that the expenses to exist in the world are actually very low. You can exist on a relatively low amount of money. The amount of money that I used to spend in clothes and entertainment and buying all the latest gizmos and gadgets and the next motorcycle and the next motorcycle and the next motorcycle and the the next car and the next car, that's very expensive to maintain craving, desire, attachment. You know, the other day I went out and I bought 10 sets of clothes. 10 sets of clothes were $100 for 10 sets of clothes. So $10 for a shirt and a pair of pants. This was 10 sets. And this will last me for about two years or so. So I won't have to spend any more money on any clothing whatsoever for the next two years. $100 is all that it took. Where I would sink that into like a half a shirt or a half a pair of jeans or a half a pair of shoes in the past where now I got my complete wardrobe for the next couple of years for the same amount of money. So by pulling back your craving, desire, attachment, by not having to project this self-image of I'm so successful, look at me and all the great things that I've got, by knocking that down, you'll actually see that your income can really be above your expenses and you can knock your expenses down pretty low. And this is going to create more peacefulness for you. Going back to Robert's question about relaxing, one of the reasons why the mind goes, 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 goes so actively is because it's trying to keep up with all this craving, right? If you've got all this craving to have the best clothes and the best phone and the best car and the best house and all the best, 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 that's gonna keep the mind working, right? It's gonna go, 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 go all the time. Where if you can get to a point where you knock down that craving and having to project that self-image all the time, then you'll actually not only spend less money, but you'll actually have more time to spend with the people around you and spend time doing activities that you truly enjoy. This is one of the things that I learned from the Thai people. While they're very hard workers and they can work very hard, they also know how to relax as well. They will spend probably 80% of their time with family. You know, in America, when I was there, you know, your whole life, you know, 90, 95% of my life that I created anyway, not everybody, but the life that I created, 90, 95% of it was work and very little time with family. But here in Thailand, they completely reverse that. 
you know, 80% of probably what they do is with their family and friends of relaxing, spending time together, doing things. And 20% is actually working. And when you knock back that craving where you're not buying so many things all the time, then you don't really have to work as much. You don't have to have as much of an income. It's very common here in Thailand for restaurants to open in the morning. And some of them sell out their food by 10 a.m., 12 noon. They will sell out their food and they'll just close, right? They'll just close and they'll just go spend time with their family. They could easily go out and buy more food, cook more food, make more money, right? Or even the next day, they could buy massive amount of more food, make more food, make more money. They don't do that. There's restaurants here in Thailand that if you don't show up in time, all the food's sold and it's gone. They close their door. So their restaurant might say they're open from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., but a lot of them will close at like 11, 12, 1. If you don't get there in time, the food's all gone. And rather than them feeling like this urgent need to just keep making money and money and money, make some money, make more money, they're just like, okay, we're done. We made enough money for today. We're going to go relax and spend time with our family. And I think there's a really good lesson there for us to learn that the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that we're looking for with enlightenment, it doesn't mean making the most money. This is what we're oftentimes taught that by the more and more and more and more money that we make, that's what's going to create the happiness. And everyone's chasing this condition of happiness. And we condition it with wealth and, you know, fame and, you know, materialistic things. And oftentimes we're chasing after that material wealth and those materialistic things. And we think once we get those, the mind's going to be happy. And it is for a period of time, but then more craving kicks in and now you want more and you want more and you want more. And this is what I noticed from starting a very small business in America and growing it, becoming very, very successful with it. It was, you know, growing and I was paying attention to the customers and I was very pleased with helping the customers. But then when I closed the businesses and I came here to Thailand with the thought that I was going to be done and no longer work, within three weeks, I opened up another company and I started making money in Thailand and I became very successful making money here in Thailand with another company. And that company was making a lot of money and I realized it was just never enough. It was just money, 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 just always chasing the next car, the next motorcycle, the next piece of clothes, the next whatever. And that's when I finally just said, okay, enough's enough. And I'm done with all of that. And I gave up all the career and everything. So we've got to reprogram the mind to realize that this material wealth, this materialism, this capitalism that kind of motivates us to go, 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 go all the time, that's not going to lead to sustained happiness. That's not going to lead to permanent happiness because that happiness is impermanent. It's unsatisfactory. Even when you get that next thing that creates happiness in the mind, it becomes unsatisfied. It may be satisfied for a week or a month or what have you, but then pretty quickly the mind becomes unsatisfied and then it's off chasing the next thing. 
And that's why when you find this middle on all these given topics and you can stay there and then navigate that accordingly, then you're always kind of in the zone. You're always like, ah, this feels good because I'm not holding it too tight and I'm not holding it too loose. I'm doing some work. I'm getting some things done. I'm progressing in this life, but I'm also not holding it so tightly that it's suffocating me, that I can just be content here in the middle. I can spend time with family and friends, do things alone that I enjoy, and I can also have this career and enjoy this progress of the career, and I can sustain this middle, and it can be very peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy being in this middle. That's where the mind performs optimally. We have a question from Deborah. I find it difficult dividing time with family and other commitments. I tend to try to please everybody, which doesn't work. Do I need to find the middle way or is this due to my attachment? You're definitely not in the middle if you're trying to please everyone else. This is always going to lead to discontentedness. This is a craving desire attachment. So you have this mental longing and strong eagerness to please everybody. And if somebody's sad or somebody doesn't get what they want, you feel bad. Your mind feels sad or angry or frustrated or bored or lonely or what have you. You're going to experience discontentedness because you're attaching your contentedness to somebody else being happy. And their happiness isn't permanent. And because their happiness isn't permanent, neither is your contentedness either. So you've got to eliminate this yearning, this longing, this strong eagerness to please other people and to see everyone else be happy. It doesn't mean you don't care about them, right? It just means you don't hold it so tightly where you're rushing around trying to please everyone else. What you've got to realize is that you can't do that. Everybody else has to find their own peaceful mind, their own content life. You've got to focus on your life. But also if you did nothing to help anybody, and you were just selfishly absorbed into your own life, that wouldn't be the middle either. So you've got to bring this to the middle where you help some people, you show some kindness, you you know, help people and show generosity and share, but you don't place your contentedness based on some expectation that they're going to be happy all the time because they're not going to be happy all the time because even your happiness isn't permanent their happiness isn't permanent either. So you've got to get to the point where you're not trying to fulfill other people. That's just a craving desire attachment. You've got to eliminate that and just say, you know what, I'm going to take care of Deborah and I'm going to work on Deborah. And sure, I'll have active goodwill without judgment for others. I'll have concern for others' misfortune. If someone needs my help, sure, I will help them but I need to work on Deborah. Everybody else has to find their own contentedness, has to find their own peaceful life. And Deborah's got to find hers. I have a question about applying the middle way to the practice of mindfulness. So I understand that mindfulness is always useful. However, is it possible to try too hard to be mindful? I think so. Yeah. So even all of these teachings, right? Like last week, this is why this shows up. The middle way shows up after the Eightfold Path, because last week we talked about the Eightfold Path. We talked about right view, 
right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Each one of these are almost like dials that you're trying to dial in and get perfectly in the middle, right? So let's just take something like speech, even though you asked about mindfulness, Max. Let's take something like speech and then we'll go to mindfulness. Something like speech. If you were just so utterly serious about your speech and overanalyzing every single last word that you spoke, and you were just hinging on every single word and overanalyzing it, overthinking it, that's going to be holding it too tightly. And you're going to find that it's going to be very difficult for you to have personal professional relationships. But also, if you didn't really care about what you said, and you just kind of had a loose tongue, loose lips, and you just let any old words fly out of your mouth, that's not going to be beneficial either. So you've got to find this middle with right speech, and that's what the Buddha gives with the five factors of well-spoken speech. He's saying this is the middle. We speak at the right time. What we say is true. What we speak is gentle. It's beneficial. It's a mind of loving kindness without blame. This is the middle. But as you're working to get that, you're going to be shooting all over the place, trying to find this middle as you're bringing your practice in line, it's going to be shooting all over the place until eventually, boom, you get right to the middle with something like right speech. And right mindfulness is the same way. I kind of mentioned this last week in our talk. I was saying, you know, what mindfulness is, what right mindfulness is, is awareness of mind, being aware of the mind. What are the unwholesome qualities in the mind and what are the wholesome qualities in the mind? And we need to eliminate those unwholesome qualities and we need to bring in the wholesome qualities. And as we go through this program, you'll learn more and more about what those unwholesome qualities are and what those wholesome qualities are. And what I was mentioning is that if you haven't had awareness of mind and you've just been walking around just kind of haphazardly doing things in your life, now that you realize as part of this path that you need to have this awareness of mind, you might start overthinking it. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing when you first get started on the path to developing right mindfulness and awareness of mind. Overthinking for a little bit of time for a few weeks isn't necessarily a bad thing because you're kind of making all the connections and you're starting to become aware of the mind. So if you overthink for a few weeks, that's okay. But what you got to do is you got to bring that to the middle where if there's a certain conversation that happens and it doesn't go well, you need to reflect on that. You need to look at right speech. You need to look at the five factors of well-spoken speech. And you need to figure out what you could have done to improve that conversation so that then the next time you're involved in a conversation, you can practice closer to the five factors of well-spoken speech. But if you sit there and you overanalyze it, and you start blaming yourself and you start feeling guilty and you start feeling shameful and you start feeling dreadful and now you want to pick up the phone and you know call three four five people and talk about how these teachings are so difficult and it's so challenging to practice right speech and oh you know you're just miserable that you didn't practice right speech this is overshooting mindfulness and awareness of mind so you've got to kind of take that step back 
You've got to reflect. You got to see what you're doing to cause situations to not turn out well. Reflect against the Buddhist teachings. Look for areas of improvement. And if you don't see that, get your teacher's help to see where you can improve. And then take that, note that, and then aim to do better. And then even in the next situation, if you mess up again and you make a mistake, don't beat yourself up and give up and say, oh, I'm no good at this because I didn't get it on my second try. No, even if you messed up the second time, the third time, the 10th time, the 20th time, you just never give up and you keep working towards the goal without overanalyzing it. You got to spend some time reflecting on the situation, but don't overanalyze it because then you're going to hold it too tight. But if you never looked at conversations that you're involved in and why they're not going well, then that could be a problem too. And then likewise, if a conversation went really, really well and you start reflecting on it and you start feeling real prideful, you're like, wow, look at me. I'm practicing all these five factors of well-spoken speech. David just talked about that last week, but man, I got this in like one week and man, lickety split, look at me, right? The pride kicks in, the ego kicks in, the arrogance kicks in, and you just kind of dwell in that. That's not good either. That's holding it too tightly. But also if you never kind of said, you know what? Yeah, I did that well. I'm glad to see that. If you never kind of looked at your successes and chose to say, wow, I did that well, I'm really glad that I'm progressing on this path, that wouldn't be good either. So you can't be real prideful, arrogant, and egotistical about your progress on this path, but you can't also never look at it and just be like, ah, whatever happens, happens. You gotta be like, yeah, I kind of did that well. Pleased to see that. Let's keep walking forward. Let's keep going forward. Leave the ego, arrogance, and pride behind But you can look at it and be like, wow, I'm making some real progress on this. That's great. What's next? Let's go forward. So you got to be sure with this mindfulness, this awareness of mind, that you're not dwelling in it and you're not holding it too tightly, but also that you're not not doing it too. You need to be aware. You need to bring the mind to the middle where you're not overanalyzing, but you're not never looking at it either. You got to come to the middle. Got it. Thank you. Okay, we have a question from Amina. I have a question about finding the middle with protecting ourselves from COVID during this pandemic. It is important to be careful, but also would like to avoid developing fear of being around others. Yeah, so this is where discernment comes in with all of this, right? There's always this discernment. What discernment is, is it's wise decision making, right? So When COVID first hit, the world didn't really understand it and know what was going on much. You know, a lot of people's heads were spinning because this is a massive amount of impermanence, right? Everybody was going about their day, going about their life, going to work, going to school, seeing friends, seeing family, and everybody had a certain life. And then all of a sudden, whoa-woom, COVID came in. And all of a sudden, People didn't know who to believe, who had the right information, what was it that we were really supposed to be doing in order to ensure that we were protecting ourselves and our family and protecting our neighbors and community members and things like this. But over the last several months, 
you know, the news has kind of made its rounds and we understand social distancing, we understand wearing masks, we understand only going out if we really absolutely need things and, and, you know, being sequestered in our house is not necessarily a bad thing, but it took a few weeks, if not months, for people to let go of that permanence where everybody was used to going outside and having a certain life that was permanent for people. So when people started being quarantined or people decided to start self-isolating or staying at home, a lot of people were discontent. A lot of people were lonely, bored, frustrated, angry because of this change. The mind doesn't like impermanence, right? In the Four Noble Truths, we talked about how the mind craves permanence. Another way to say that is the mind does not like impermanence. So it took several weeks for a lot of people to get adjusted to be at home. Now that everybody's at home for so many months, when the world starts opening back up again and and people have to start going to work, people aren't going to like that either because now their mind is permanently fixed and comfortable to being at home because it's adjusted to that. And now people aren't going to necessarily feel comfortable going back to work. But what we need to do with this COVID is we need to have this wise decision-making, discernment, where you take in news, you take in information, and you make wise choices. And this is where, you know, like I mentioned, social distancing, wearing masks, going to public settings uh, with few people, only going out where you really need to. Here in Thailand, everywhere you go, they do temperature checks. They do contact tracing where you have to either sign in with a mobile app or you have to sign in with a pen and pencil in your phone number so that they know that you were there. So if there's someone that has COVID, they will track down the people that were there. They have hand sanitizer at the front entrance of all the different buildings. They have it really well organized where it's almost just like part of life now that it's completely normal. So you've got to learn and you've got to follow what public health officials are sharing. These people are incentivized and their decision and their career is all based on making people safe, right? The real challenge comes in and where the fear comes in is the uncertainty. Oftentimes when public officials come out and they share guidance, oftentimes people don't trust them. People don't trust for some reason. They feel like there's some conspiracy or they feel like there's some problem that this person is just trying to subvert everybody to wearing a mask. And somehow that's exerting control over everybody. But you've got to kind of step back and you kind of got to look at this wisely and say, well, what's the real burden of me wearing a mask, right? If I wear a mask and someday we find out that that really didn't help, then what really harm did I do by wearing this mask? I didn't cause any harm. I just wore a mask and it didn't cause any harm to anybody. But if I don't wear a mask and someday we find out that that really truly is what's needed to remedy this virus, then I will get sick. My family will get sick. Other people will get sick and I cause harm. So you've got to kind of look at, well, what's the real harm of doing what these public officials are really asking of us? And there's really no harm in putting a mask on. It doesn't harm anyone. 
And then you also have to look at the world. You have to look at good information. So if you look at places like Thailand or Vietnam or Korea, South Korea, places like this, these are all what we call mask wearing cultures. Before COVID ever came out, people in Thailand already wore masks because of air pollution. A lot of people on motorcycles and walking down the street, we already pretty much wore masks. It was already part of our culture. When the public health officials came out and said, everyone should be wearing masks in public, everybody already had masks laying around. We didn't have to go out and buy a bunch of masks. Most people already had these around and everybody was very comfortable wearing masks. So we put on the mask pretty much from the very beginning when all the public health officials said that it was the right thing to do here in Thailand. And we started doing temperature checks, contact tracing, cleaning hands, and all this kind of stuff. Well, if you look at the COVID numbers in Thailand, I haven't looked at them recently, but the last time I looked, they've only had about 3,000 cases or so. And deaths, they were right around 60 the last time I, I looked. And out of that 3,000, a lot of them were kind of imported from overseas, like it was Thai people coming back from overseas, so they contracted it somewhere else. And then since they arrived here and had COVID, they actually counted it. So homegrown cases of COVID in Thailand is very, very low. And if you look at Vietnam and if you look at other places that are mask wearing cultures, these statistics and data shows us that masks must be beneficial because it's not an anomaly that all these countries wearing masks have low numbers of incidences of COVID and low numbers of death. And then you look at places like the United States where it's not a mask wearing culture. People aren't used to wearing masks and that represents a big change for people. And this is why people were so discontent about even the thought or the idea of wearing a mask because they're not even used to it. They're not even familiar with it. They don't even have them laying around. They've never really worn them in America for any particular reason. They haven't really had to because the air quality is pretty decent there. So you look at the numbers in America and a culture that isn't wearing masks and you see these really high numbers. So what you can do to kind of alleviate this fear and make some really good wise decisions is you can take in information and you can look at what makes sense for me as an individual. What should I do in this case to keep my family safe? And wearing a mask, cleaning your hands, social distancing, only going out when you need to, doing contact tracing, things like this are all very wise decisions that you can make. And hopefully that can help you to alleviate any kind of fear because if you're taking all these good choices and you're progressing in life based on these good choices, that's the best you can do. Everything else is just kind of up to chance almost. It's just if I can track COVID and I have followed all the health recommendations, well, then I just contracted COVID. And now that I've contracted it, you know, I know you, Amina, you're a pretty young, healthy, vibrant person. You'll probably pull through it just fine because you don't have any pre-existing conditions that would potentially cause harm or death to you. So take all these precautions. You most likely won't get COVID. If you do get COVID, you're fairly young, fairly healthy, you probably won't die from it. But then you have to go to the next step as well, is realize that sickness, aging, and death is part of the human condition.
we're all going to get sick, we're all going to age, we're all going to die. It's just a matter of when and how, right? It's just a matter of when and how. So you got to eliminate that fear of death, right? That's part of the COVID scare is a lot of people are afraid of death because they're not quite sure what's next. And in order to get to that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, you've got to eliminate the fear of death and realize that, okay, this body's impermanent, this life's impermanent. I might leave my daughter, I'm gonna leave my, my husband, all of this stuff is gonna leave me someday, and I can either sit here and be fearful and disappointed and sad that that's going to happen, or I can just accept it and realize that's part of the human condition and I'm going to die at some point. So take wise steps, take precautions, and make good decisions based off of wisdom and statistics, but then at a certain level, you've got to get comfortable with just the fact that you're going to die and the people around you are gonna die at some point. It's just a fact of life. And that's the only way to get to peacefulness is to eliminate this fear of death along with all the other fears that exist in the mind. We have a question from Manal. She says, Teacher David, a question on behalf of my husband today. How can he work with co-workers in his corporate job who are void of right speech and right intention? How would he bridge the gap if he approaches things more mindfully, yet they perceive this as a weakness? Where is the middle path here? Well, the middle path is that if people at work or anywhere in your life, not just work, anywhere, if they're being hostile in their speech, if they're being aggressive or angry or vindictive or you know going through the five factors, if they're not speaking at the right time, if they're lying, if they're speaking harsh, if they're speaking unpurposefully, if they're not speaking with a mind of loving kindness, with hate and anger, that's their practice. That's them speaking. They're causing harm to themselves what you've got to do is not allow it to cause harm to your mind. If they're being angry and vindictive to you, the worst thing you can do is match that and come back at them because now you're causing harm too. Whereas if you're just quiet, like if somebody was yelling and hollering at me in public or at work or at home, I would just stay quiet. I would have nothing to say to them. I'd probably just smile. At this point in my life, I just smile. It wouldn't affect me at all because that's their practice. They're causing harm by talking angry, by talking vindictive. If I got angry and I started being, being hostile and aggressive back, what's that going to solve? It's just now there's an argument. There's an all-out fight. There's an all-out argument, especially in a professional environment. But I know where he's going that in some cases, if somebody tries to come up over the top of you with anger or ego and you don't stand up for yourself, people perceive that as a weakness, right? But you've got to reverse that and see that the real weakness is that if you allow this person's anger and hostility to now control your mind where you become hostile and angry, they're controlling you through their hostile aggression and anger or their ego, they're controlling you because now you're trying to come up over the top of them. Where if you remain unaffected by their hostility and anger, 
now you're the one who's actually powerful because you've got complete control over your mind. Somebody can backstab you, can gossip you, can be aggressive or angry. Doesn't affect you at all. You can maintain control of the mind. This is someone who's actually quite powerful because now the mind's liberated that you're not subjected and controlled by other speech and actions. But getting there, it's going to take time. You have to progress along this path. And if you don't have something good to say, don't say anything at all. You being angry and hostile is not going to solve anything. You're going to come out of that situation looking just as bad as them. Whereas if they have ego, they have aggression, they have anger, and you just remain quiet and smile or don't even smile, just be neutral, people are going to see, people are going to know what's going on, and you're going to be the one that has the real power and control because you've got complete control over your mind, right? A person who's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy only needs to walk with wisdom and a smile. You have nothing to prove to anybody. That's the problem with the ego is the ego wants to go around and prove itself to everybody. So that when somebody says something, if you disagree with it, the ego wants to jump right in there and show everybody how smart you are. Why? Because of the ego, right? But someone who's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, they can control their mind 100%. They don't need to always be looked at as the biggest, brightest, baddest person on the block they can very selectively share their wisdom and their knowledge to help move this group forward. They don't have to fight it out with every little stroke and every little fight. An enlightened person isn't going to argue with other people, right? So if somebody else wants to argue, let them argue with themselves, right? So you have to train the mind Manal's husband, whatever your name is, you have to train the mind. Dive into this book that your wife's been studying, The Four Noble Truths, The Eightfold Path. Do some meditation. You've got to train the mind to not allow others' speech and actions to affect you. And right now, it may be, and that's okay. That's just where you are. But you can move and get to the point where others don't affect you. And that's where the real power is because now you've got complete control over your mind 100% of the time. We have a comment from Joy. She says, this is an interesting conversation. I'm currently working for a phone bank for a political party. Sometimes we get cussed out by opposition members when we call their homes. As professionals, we just, okay, thanks, and go on to the next call. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is what we have to do in general settings when we hear things we disagree with, just let it go and move on to the next thing. Exactly. Like uh, I had somebody today with a group that Max and I have recently started to structure. Somebody had one of their posts deleted in Facebook and they contacted me and they were disagreeing that their post was deleted. I wasn't even the person who deleted it, but because I'm one of the admins, they contacted me and they shared all these reasons why we were wrong for deleting their posts. And I just read their chat and I wrote them back. I said, thank you for sharing your thoughts and opinions. And they said, okay, right? 
I didn't hurt them with my speech. Now, had I gotten aggressive and say, no, you're wrong. We deleted this because of that. And, you know, we did it because of this. And if I would have started coming back, now we've got this hostile argument and, and aggression. Or like in Joy's case, if somebody becomes hostile and aggressive with you because of political situation, if you became hostile and aggressive with them, it just never ends. It's just this cat fight. Whereas if somebody becomes hostile and aggressive and you just, okay, thank you. I appreciate your opinion. And then you just move on. Or I appreciate your thoughts. Thanks for sharing that with me. And you just move on. That's where the mind has real control. That if you've done breathing mindfulness meditation a lot and you've practiced generosity where you can let things go, even when people argue and are hostile with you, you don't hold on to that. You don't take that in. If there's no ego, if there's no self there, right? Because that's part of what we need to eliminate to get to enlightenment. If there's no self and there's no ego, when somebody says something that you disagree with or they're angry, it doesn't affect you because there's no ego there. There's no self. You just, okay. And you move on. And the mind can do that if you've trained it in meditation to let go, to let go, to let go. That's why in breathing mindfulness meditation, we focus on the breath so that when the thoughts come in, we just let them go. When the thoughts come in, just let them go. So then when you hear somebody's angry speech, you just let it go. Just like it doesn't even affect you. It's not affecting you because there is no you. There is no self there. There is no ego there. If you dissolve that self and you dissolve that ego, then you don't feel this need to protect the self. You don't have to protect this ego. But if there's an ego and a self there, then yeah, you're going to rear up and you're going to start arguing and you're going to get hostile and aggressive. And then now you're causing harm and then that harm is going to come back to you. So it's better to just let it go and move on. We have a question from Rhonda. I had someone email attack me publicly this week at work. At first, it made me ultra mad that I had physical reaction, shaking and dizzy. I quickly caught it. I was quiet, though I did correct very gently and kindly my intention. So should I have let the inaccuracies about me be, or was it effective for me to set the record straight kindly and factually? This is a great place to talk about the middle way. Thank you for sharing that, Rhonda. So an email attack, completely slander, right? And Rhonda knows that because whatever she saw, she's like, whoa, that's not me. I, I didn't, that's not who I am. That's not what I did. So being in the middle doesn't mean you do nothing, right? Complacency. This is what a lot of people think Buddhist practitioners do is that when something wrong happens, we just stay complacent and just be like, all right, whatever. We're not even going to get engaged with it. That's not always true. In certain cases, it's wise to say something to correct the record, right? But in doing so, if Rhonda did this while she was angry, whatever email reply she writes, it's going to come through with anger, right? So you've got to find that middle. So when you feel that anger and frustration because this person just publicly slandered you, you don't want to hold on to it so tight that it causes you anger and frustration. 
you don't also want to just be like, ah, whatever. I don't care if 30 of my colleagues don't know the real story and this person just slandered me, right? Because that's not going to be good either. But if you can control the anger, eventually you won't even feel the anger. It won't even arise. But now it still is arising because you're not yet enlightened. But at least wait until the anger is gone and the frustration has gone and you've got a clear head. And now you can plot steps with discernment, with wise decision making. You can plot steps with what's the right way to approach this. So what Buddhist practice is about is not reacting to situations because while your mind's moving to enlightenment, you are going to have discontentedness. You are going to have anger and frustration and irritation. So when you have anger, frustration, irritation, if you react to that email, you know that's not going to go well because you're reacting out of anger, hostility, hatred, ill will, whatever, right? Those things are there. That reaction is always going to be wrong. It's not going to work. You're not going to practice right speech in that situation. So what a wise Buddhist practitioner is going to do is they're going to cut that off. They're going to let it go. If it takes a few hours or a few days, rather than just quickly jump back on email and start replying and defending yourself, let it go for now. Let the anger subside. Let the frustration subside and think about what's the best response here. Rather than react, with that hostility and anger, let me let that go. The self, the ego kicked in. Okay, I see that. Yeah, you're still there. You're not gone yet. So let me cut it off. Let me let it go. And now a few hours or a few days later, let me plot some steps of what's the best way to approach this. And this is why the Buddha didn't tell you what to do necessarily. He didn't say, if somebody writes a bad email about you, do X, Y, and Z. Right. What he's doing is teaching you to eliminate these defilements of the mind, these taints of the mind. Get rid of the self. Get rid of the ego. Get rid of the craving to always be right. Get rid of the anger and the hostility and the ill will. Get rid of the ignorance of talking with wrong speech and the hostility. Get rid of all that stuff. And now with a clear head, make wise decisions to move this in the direction that you need to move it in. That would be the middle way. As you practice more and more, you'll get to the point where the solutions will come much more readily. Now what's happening is the anger and frustration rose. You caught it and you let it go. So that's good. Over time, these same kind of situations can happen and you won't even feel the anger because you'll have worked through enough of these situations that you will have the wisdom that when these kind of situations happen, you will know how to resolve it. And your colleagues and coworkers, through you applying wisdom and responding to this situation, what you're going to teach them without even realizing it, by you responding to this situation, your colleagues are going to learn all right, if we slander Rhonda, she's going to handle this situation very wisely and it's not going to turn out well for us. So what you'll see is less and less people 
will actually start doing these things around you and to you because they realize don't mess with Rhonda because she's a pretty wise cookie and she's going to come in and have some very wise ways to handle the situation. Not that you're trying to look wise, not that you're trying to come in with ego, but you just peacefully, kindly, whichever way you feel is best, and it's probably going to entail multiple decisions, handle the situation. Don't just let it go if people are slandering you, but then also don't hold it so tightly that you operate through this anger because that's going to lead to bad results. You've got to let that go and then respond rather than react. Okay, we have a question from Javier. He asks, today my daughter turns nine. What can we do to introduce our children to these teachings? She tried meditation once in yoga class and said it was boring. Yeah, children are interesting. There's a lot you can do with children. I have a children's book that Javier, if you send me a message, I will send you the link that you can download it. And it's got the beginning teachings up to the Eightfold Path in the children's book. And I use cartoons and I use some real basic language to introduce the three universal truths of impermanence, discontentedness, non-self. We introduce the five precepts. We introduce the Eightfold Path and things like this. So you can actually sit down with your daughter and use this activity book in order to teach her. But then what you want to do is you want to bring it to life for them. You want to go outside and show them impermanence. Don't just talk about it. Show it to them. Because these are natural laws of existence, the teachings of the Buddha are all around you. So when you're talking about impermanence and you're teaching her about that, you can go out, show her how the leaves in the tree are nice and green and vibrant. The leaves on the ground are old and dead and crispy and show how that's changed and they don't stay permanently green, right? Show how a car looks nice and clean and then it gets dirty, right? If there's a dead squirrel on the sidewalk, show her that the squirrel isn't permanent, right? Show how a house was once beautiful and brand new and now it's old. Show examples of impermanence. Show examples of discontentedness. Show examples of the Four Noble Truths. And then, yeah, slowly start helping them meditate. And the mind is always going to either want to run or it's going to want to fight. Those are the two things that the mind does when it's time to meditate. It's either going to come up with a list of all the things that it should be doing besides meditating, which is running, or it's going to fight and it's not going to want to do it. Just like you taught your daughter and you had to remind her constantly to take a shower and you had to remind her constantly to brush her teeth before she finally got it and she started doing it herself, you're going to have to remind her to do meditation. And it's going to be a constant reminder for many weeks and months before she starts seeing the real value in it and she starts seeing how it's helping her. You have to show her how it's actually helping her. And this activity book will help you taking her out into the real world and seeing these natural laws of existence will really help. And then her actually practicing meditation and seeing how it helps to calm her mind, she will start seeing the benefit of that. And what you've got to do as a parent is you've got to show her that you really value her calm mind. 
because children oftentimes want to be up here and play and excitement, those pleasurable feelings. They want to live up there all the time and they don't realize that that's not permanent. So you've got to show her that you really value this calm mind and she's making wise decisions to meditate. And when she meditates, you know, give her a hug, give her a high five, tell her she did a good job. Tell her you, you know, really see her moving towards becoming a bigger and bigger girl, right? Like that's what children usually like to hear is they want to be big boys and big girls, right? So show her how these are good quality traits that you really value as a parent. Because one of the things that children also really value is they really want to be the apple of the eye of the parents, right? They really want to please their parents, especially a daughter with a father. So you've got to show her not in a craving way, not in a forceful way, but you've got to show her like, wow, that's really great that you meditate and that's really helpful for you. Daddy is really proud of you and that's really going to help you in life. You've got to you know, talk with her over multiple sessions. You know, with adults even, it takes us gradual learning and gradual training. But with children, it takes a lot of gradual patience. But by you bringing these teachings into your family and sharing them with your daughter, growing up with being on this path and with a more awakened, enlightened mind, she'll have such a better life because she'll be able to make decisions. She'll have the guidance that she needs to really create a really wonderful life for herself rather than just being out there not really knowing what to do and how to make decisions she'll have good decision making through the teachings that she learns with the buddha and she'll have a nice calm mind through meditation so slowly gradually implement the teachings with her and share them with her she's not going to probably like it when you first get started but you've got to find kind of interesting activities by taking her outside and showing her things in the real world. That's probably going to be more interactive and more fun than just sitting inside and meditating. That's probably something you want to do later. You probably want to teach her about impermanence and discontentedness and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, all of that stuff first before you move her into meditation. We have a question from Patricia. She says, I'm a newbie. Need advice on the best way to get your mind on the right path and leave all the jealousy and dislike and judgment behind. What do you do when your mind automatically goes to the wrong thinking? You've got to train the mind. There's no quick fixes to this unenlightened mind. You've got to start at the beginning, you know, download this book or get a copy of the printed version or listen to the audiobook online. You got to start at the beginning you've got to progress through because you've got to understand the teachings of why the mind is feeling jealousy, right? Like this is often that people will say, you know, how do I get rid of jealousy or how do I get rid of anxiety or how do I get rid of depression? What did the Buddha say about depression? How do I get rid of that? The answer is actually all the same. The problem that's creating the jealousy, the problem that's creating the anger, not that you said you had anger, the problem that's creating the frustration, the problem that's creating anxiety, the problems that are creating the boredom and loneliness, it's actually all the same problems. The symptom of jealousy, anger, frustration, boredom, loneliness, those are symptoms of the same problems. 
The problem is craving desire attachment, which you'll learn about at the very beginning of this book in chapter four, but you've got to start at the beginning and progress through it so that you understand the problem. And that's one of the beauties about learning the Buddhist teachings is that we oftentimes look at all of these symptoms of all of these feelings that we're experiencing in the unenlightened mind, and we think that these are all separate problems and they're separate antidotes or separate solutions to jealousy, to anxiety, to depression, to anger, right on down the line, boredom and loneliness. But in reality, it's actually all stemming from the exact same problem. Generally, it's the unenlightened mind. More specifically, it's craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality, the self and the ego, which we're going to get into in two weeks. More detailed, it's the 10 fetters, which we covered back in chapter three, right? Even more detailed than that, it's the Four Noble Truths, the craving, desire, attachment. So once you address these problems, the craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality, the self and the ego, when you start training the mind, you're actually going to take care of that jealousy if you have any fear, if you have anxiety, if you have depression or sadness or frustration, loneliness, boredom, shyness, all of these discontent feelings are actually being remedied through the same central primary problem in the mind and the solutions, which is the breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. So you're kind of coming in towards the beginning, Patricia, but you can actually start with the beginning of this book, the preface. And if you started reading the preface and at the end of each chapter, there's links for podcasts and videos and quizzes. You can just progress at your own pace. If you happen to catch up to us in this online live content, you, you can do that and you can keep attending these classes. But I suggest you go back to the beginning and start at the beginning so that you can build up your wisdom and build up your foundation to understand what the problem is. Because right now I could tell you the solution is breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing generosity, loving kindness meditation, practicing loving kindness, learning the Buddhist teachings, discovering they're the truth, eliminating the 10 fetters. I can tell you all these things, but they're not gonna mean anything to you because you haven't really progressed from the beginning of the book. So you'll have to go back to the beginning and start at the beginning. And that's really fun and it can be enjoyable for you. And you've got the help that you need. So you can ask questions in Facebook and post. You can send me a private message. You can ask questions here in live classes, or you can schedule a personal meeting with me where we talk by audio or video and I can meet with you privately and help you as well. And all of that's offered to you openly and freely. There's no fee for, for any of this help. So it just requires you to start at the beginning, realizing there's no quick fixes. You've got to kind of progress piece by piece. That's why the Buddha started his very first talk as the Four Noble Truths, because without that, you're not going to understand the other things to come. So you've got to start at the beginning. We have a question from Guyen. She asks, Dear David, I read the Buddha's teaching in the Majjhima Nikaya. There are four processes. One, 
pain in the first and then a painful results. Two, pain in the first and then a pleasurable results. Three, pleasure in the first and then a painful results. And four, pleasure in the first and then pleasure results. Please help to give some examples to illustrate those above. Thank you. Okay, what I would suggest that you do is set that aside because that level of understanding isn't required for you to train in these teachings and actually get to enlightenment. What you need to understand in order to understand the mind and these feelings is the three feelings that the Buddha talked about. He used the word dukkha. A lot of people translate this to mean suffering, but I use the word discontentedness discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. There's three feelings. There's painful feelings, which are things like anger, sadness, frustration, guilt, shame, fear. These are all very painful. These are things experienced in the mind. The mind is discontent. Then there's pleasant feelings, which is happiness, excitement, elation, things like this, very pleasurable feelings. This is also discontent because the mind can't maintain happiness, excitement, and elation permanently. The mind is discontent when it's happy. When it's excited, it's discontent. When it's elated, it's discontent because it goes on this real high ride and then it comes back and crashes. So pleasant feelings are discontent or discontentedness. And then feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. I think about like loneliness or boredom or shyness, kind of like a genuine like uncomfortableness, just kind of unpleasantness, unsatisfaction. That's neither painful nor pleasant. So the unenlightened mind cycles through all of these three feelings, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. So it's happy, it's sad, it's frustrated, it has anxiety, it has fears, it has guilt, it's lonely, it's shy. Okay, maybe you get a little bit of peace in here every once in a while, but then it goes right back to anger or frustration or something else. And it keeps cycling through these three feelings, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. This is what the unenlightened mind experiences. And it's called discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. Most of the teachings that you see in English will translate this to mean suffering. And I understand because the first feeling of painful feelings, yeah, when you're angry or you're sad or you're guilty or feel shameful, yeah, it kind of feels like suffering. But when you're happy, you're excited, elated, you wouldn't say you were suffering. Or like when you were shy, neither painful nor pleasant. When you're shy, you wouldn't say you were suffering. So the Buddha never taught to eliminate suffering. This is where the Buddha's teachings get a really bad rap. If you talk to people who understand the Buddha's teachings and say the Buddha taught to eliminate suffering and life is suffering, people will say that the Buddha's teachings are pessimistic. They will say his teachings are very negative, that they're very pessimistic. But that's because they're misunderstanding his teachings. And we're using the wrong word if we use the word suffering. The Buddha didn't teach to eliminate suffering. What he taught was to eliminate painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. 
What the Buddha taught is to eliminate discontentedness, to eliminate the discontent mind. Because when the mind is cycling and moving about all these impermanent feelings, then it can't be enlightened. This enlightened mental state is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And it's permanent. The mind is permanently in that mental state. Peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. While all these other feelings, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant, they're all impermanent. They're constantly changing. So someone who's learning the Buddhist teachings in the way that I teach, what they'll notice is when they first start out learning with me, their mind will have a lot of anger and frustration and hostility. But over time, as they learn and practice, that'll get knocked down and knocked down and knocked down where now it'll become irritated, annoyed. And then certain things will be kind of like, I don't really like that. I'd rather that not happen. But then eventually you knock down this craving, desire, attachment. You knock down this hatred, anger, ill will. You knock down this delusion, this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. You eliminate this self and this ego and you move the mind to this enlightened mental state where now it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy and it no longer experiences any of these impermanent feelings of painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant. So those are the three feelings that you need to understand. Those ones that you mentioned, I would just set that aside because you're not going to need to know that level of detail in order to work actively with these teachings and train the mind to attain enlightenment. I have a question, David. So prior to his enlightenment, Gosma Buddha for several years was practicing asceticism and self-mortification. I'm wondering what you feel the significance of that was in his learning and his eventual enlightenment and the teachings following that. I can only speculate, but I suspect what he transitioned to is realize that it's all about the mind, right? And we're benefiting from his work, right? Because prior to him realizing that, there were people all throughout his kingdom that had claimed that they had attained enlightenment. There were teachers that claimed they had attained enlightenment and they were taking in students and students were hanging upside down from trees. They were starving themselves. They were laying on beds of nails and spikes and really doing harmful things to the body. And they were trying to transcend this painful physical feelings of the physical body. He wasn't the Buddha yet. This is what Siddhartha Gautama did for two years. He suffered all of this painful physical feelings. Then he finally realized that his mind wasn't improving at all. His mind was just as discontent as it was when he started two years previous. And he just left and he went off on his own. And even though he went off on his own, he still starved himself. He still did some of these disparaging things because he didn't know anything better. He didn't know anything different. And it wasn't until the girl brought him a bowl of rice and he reluctantly started eating because he realized that if he allowed the physical body to die, that he wouldn't be able to train the mind. If the physical body was disparaged so much and starved to depletion where the physical body actually dies, 
then there's no chance to train the mind whatsoever. So this rice that the girl offered him and he reluctantly ate and started nourishing his body, that was a real turning point in his practice that we are all benefiting from today, that we know not to go out and damage our body and hang upside down from trees because he tried that and it didn't work. And what he taught us is, no, it's all about training the mind and here is the path. And he gave us that path to train the mind through the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings that he shared. So it's not about physical pain. And this is one of the reasons why I don't use the word suffering, because when we use the word suffering to relate to the Buddhist teachings, most people's mind goes to physical pain, goes to physical suffering. That's what we call suffering. But the Buddha wasn't talking about physical suffering because you can't transcend the pain that the body actually feels. As long as you're human, even when you're enlightened, you're still going to feel physical pain. That physical pain is there to tell the mind there's something wrong with this body. Fix it. So if I'm sitting by a fire and my foot gets too close to it, and I feel the physical pain, even if you're enlightened, your mind knows, oh, that doesn't feel good. That feels painful. Let me move the foot. So this is how you protect the physical body is through the sensation of pain. But the unenlightened mind is going to relate to that pain differently. It's not going to get angry or frustrated and start blaming everybody else for putting the fire too close to them. An enlightened mind is just going to fix the situation and be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And, whoa, thank goodness I didn't get closer or whatever an enlightened person says. So this word suffering is completely the wrong word that is used throughout Buddhist texts to relate to what the Buddha taught. So it's not until we reach to death, once somebody's enlightened, they will still experience physical pain their mind won't become discontent because of it, but they're still going to experience physical pain. And that's good because it tells the mind to move the body to a safer situation. But then once someone attains enlightenment and dies, that's what we call para-nibbana. Para-nibbana. Nibbana is enlightenment. Para-nibbana means final enlightenment. Because even when you're alive and you're enlightened, the mind and the physical body are still together. So there's still going to be some degree of physical pain that's experienced by the mind. You can't transcend that even when you're enlightened. But once you die, that's final enlightenment. That's final nibbana, where now once you've attained enlightenment and die, the physical body and the mind separate and now the mind is no longer going to experience physical pain anymore because the mind has already attained enlightenment in this life and now it's separated from the physical body and it will no longer experience any pain whatsoever. That's final enlightenment or paranibbana. Right, there are stories of when the Buddha himself had to stop teaching late at night because his back was sore and so he decided to go and rest his back so mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't free of physical pain although his mind would not have become discontent right you just recognize that it's part of the human condition sickness aging and death it's just part of the human condition 
But back to the middle way, if the Buddha was teaching there and he just taught and taught and taught and he felt the pain and he just pushed through it and pushed through it and pushed through it just because he had craving to teach, which he didn't. But if he did, if he had all this craving, he wouldn't have been a Buddha. But <laughs> if somebody's sitting there and just craving to teach and craving, 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 and you're just grin and bearing the physical pain, then that's going to lead to problems where the back now has more sustained injury. So what a wise person is going to do is coming to the middle is rather than sit there and grin and bear the physical pain, they're going to recognize the physical pain and say, you know what, I need to take a break. Let's get up and stretch and walk around. And that's good for the physical body. That's maintaining the middle. And then the lighter version of that is where is if the first little feeling or sensation of pain, if you just immediately ended the class, that wouldn't be good too, because maybe the first 20 minutes you felt slightest little bit of pain, that's not going to be good either. So you've got to find this middle where you're not grinning and burying and biting down on the pain, but you're also not allowing the mind to become discontent because of every little sensation of pain that the body feels. Because as long as you're human, there's going to be physical pain, but it's impermanent. But sometimes we go around as we age, we kind of moan and we groan and, oh, the body is just so sore. And, you know, we just think it's going to be permanent and we just complain and complain and complain. But what we've got to get to is we've got to realize that that's part of the human condition. And you can mobilize this into motivation to attain enlightenment because the mind is sitting here carrying around all this body and yeah it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to be in this body because of the aches and pains and aging and sickness and all of this stuff it's kind of uncomfortable who wants to carry this around for another 500 lives right we've already been on countless lives in the past and now you're in this human form and you can't quite get comfortable. You're switching from hip to hip. You're moving your legs around. Who wants to keep carrying this around all the time? So when you feel those little aches and pains in the body, just use it as motivation. Like, where's my books about Buddhism? Let me, let me get out of this place. Let me, let me get rid of this physical body. I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> so use it as motivation to get rid of this physical body so that you don't have to keep carrying it around all the time. We have a question from Sue. One criticism that I've heard is that by eliminating pleasant, unpleasant, and neither ple pleasant or unpleasant feelings, means that the person is having no feelings at all and are therefore not acting like a human being. I then start feeling like I'm being quite abnormal. Can you please help me understand how to respond to these criticisms if I choose to and how to understand these teachings better in my mind? Yeah, so it feels weird when you first start practicing these teachings and to think about erasing all of these feelings from the mind. People might hear it and they're like, well, that sounds kind of boring or that kind of seems like you might be numb to the world, but it's actually not true. It's just that these feelings are unsatisfactory. Sadness, anger, anxiety, guilt, shame, fear, happiness, excitement, elation, 
boredom, loneliness, shyness, it's unsatisfying. The mind's never satisfied. It's always craving and looking for the next feeling. So that happiness, that excitement, that elation, it's not satisfied with it. That's why it wears out. So the mind's not permanently satisfied. So when you move away the painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant feelings, now the mind can be inwardly satisfied. It can be inwardly content, right? You can be joyful because the mind's never discontent, right? Everything's peaceful. Everything's wonderful because the mind's never discontent. So this is where the unenlightened mind doesn't understand what enlightenment is. And all the unenlightened mind has ever known is painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And the unenlightened mind wants to put all these obstacles in front of you and tell you whatever you're going to is no good, right? Don't go there. That's no good. There's all this negative self-talk. Well, if you listen to all this negative self-talk, yeah, you're never going to get there. So this is just a person who isn't understanding what enlightenment is. And once somebody understands what true enlightenment is, where the mind resides permanently peaceful, permanently calm, permanently serene, permanently content, permanently joyful, you don't have to do anything to create a smile in your face. And other people don't have to do anything to create a smile on your face. You can just smile at will because everything's joyful. Everything's wonderful. That's the inward fulfillment, the inner contentness, right? That is so wonderful. And it's difficult for the unenlightened mind to understand it until you experience it. So, If other people try to dissuade you away from it and they think it's no good, this is just negative, pessimistic talk and trying to dissuade you from something that you already know you're on a good path because you've seen your anger go down and you've seen your frustration, your irritation go down. So you know you're on the right path. What you've got to do is get to the point where you're not trying to please other people. Because I I know you, Sue, and you like to please other people a lot. So when you hear somebody tell you something negative about what you're doing, you feel like you want to please them and you want them to be happy with what you're doing. But you have to realize this is an independent journey. They don't need to be fully informed necessarily unless they want to. They don't need to be in agreement with what you're doing for your life because this is your life. It's your journey. They don't necessarily need to be in agreement with it. If they want to come along and be on the path and experience it for themselves, then that's fine. But if they want to stand on the sidelines and just point out why you're wrong for doing what you're doing, this is just trying to hold you down and hold you in that unenlightened darkness. And if you allow the mind to stay attached to this and give into that, then yeah, that's where you'll stay is in the unenlightened mind, in the darkness. But if you disconnect from this and just be like, you know what, that's them. If they want to be negative, they want to talk negative, they want to complain, well, that's their life. I know what's right for me and I'm going to do that. But it's this craving, this desire, this attachment 
this longing with a strong eagerness for this person to be pleased that you're allowing it to affect your mind. And if they're not pleased, then you experience discontentedness. And what this practice is all about is breaking that craving, breaking that desire, that attachment, and finding your own inner contentment unattached to how others feel. Now, when you start walking this path and you start eliminating these painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant feelings, it does feel quite odd. It feels quite weird because the mind's used to feeling sad or it's used to feeling angry or frustrated. Usually when someone does something, you have a certain comeback, right? And it can feel odd, like it's different. Like, whoa, my mind didn't even react the same way. And remember, the mind doesn't like change. It doesn't like this impermanence. So it can feel like you're walking off the side of a cliff. And this is where the Buddha said you have to have confidence. You have to have confidence in him. And in this case, you have to have confidence in your teacher that you're being guided on a path that's better than where you are right now. So you've got to have this confidence that you're being guided in a place that's really, really good. I wouldn't teach this if it wasn't something that's going to completely revolutionize your life and your outlook on life and everything that you can accomplish in life. But it's going to feel weird. It's going to feel odd. It's going to feel different because the mind's not used to functioning without sadness. It's not used to functioning without anger, right? You're not going to feel numb to the world. You're still going to have deep love, deep care, deep compassion, deep generosity, right? You're going to have all these great feelings, but you're going to do it without discontentedness. You're going to feel love, care, compassion even deeper than you already do because the love that you feel now, that love has some conditions to it. It's like, I will love you if you do these things. And as long as you meet these expectations, I will love you. And as soon as you stop doing those things, I'm going to stop loving you, right? This is actually selfishness. This is attachment, actually. It's not actually true love. When you break through all of this craving, desire, attachment, and you get closer to the enlightened mind, you will have such deep love, such deep compassion, such deep care and generosity that it's more profound than any feelings that you've ever had before. And you'll be able to do it without this discontentedness. And other people around you might not like where you're headed, right? Because people like it when you're sad with them or certain people are into certain activities, right? We know what that is. They're into certain activities that they really enjoy. And their craving is trying to pull you back into those activities. So they're trying to share with you that where you're headed is no good. Well, if where they are is so wonderful, why are they so angry? Why are they so sad? If where they are is so wonderful, if it's so wonderful, then enjoy it. You don't need me, right? If where you are is so wonderful, why are you trying to pull me into it? 
you do what you want to do and I'll do what I need to do. If what you're doing is so wonderful, why are you sad? Why are you angry? Why are you frustrated? Why are you pouting around the house if what you're doing is so wonderful? Right? But they want to pull you into their activity and they want you to be miserable with them because misery loves company. Right? People don't like it when you try to transcend it. They try to pull you back down. So you've got to disconnect from that and have confidence that you're on the right path and have confidence in the Buddha and have confidence in your teacher. But it's going to feel strange. It's going to feel odd. It's going to feel different because it is different. And that's why the mind needs this gradual training to get used to functioning in this more enlightened way. And when you feel that things are the most uncomfortable that they've ever felt in your entire life, that's when you know you're really making progress on this path. When things are just utterly uncomfortable, that's when you know you're really addressing some big issues and you're really working on some really deep stuff. And that's how you know you're really deep into this and you've got your sleeves rolled up and you're trying to break through to the other side. So you may get to periods on this path where you feel deeply uncomfortable, right? I talk about this enlightened mental state, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It sounds so wonderful. It sounds like the yellow brick road. Let's all walk down the yellow brick road to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. It must just be so glorious with flowers everywhere, perfect sense and everything. No, it's quite difficult sometimes. And when you feel the most uncomfortable you've ever felt, that's when you know you're working with some pretty deep attachments, some pretty deep cravings. But if you hold on to them, you're going to keep feeling that uncomfortableness. You've got to let go of those attachments to this person who's trying to pull you down and break through. And that's where the liberation is. That's where the mind's going to be free. And it's going to feel the freedom and the liberation because now your happiness, your contentedness isn't based on this other person. And when you break through to that and you've got that inner contentment, that inner fulfillment, that's the real liberation. That's the real enlightenment. So keep progressing. If you're feeling really uncomfortable, it's because you're dealing with some pretty deep stuff, some pretty dark stuff. And that's okay. It's going to feel like that, but it's not always going to feel like that. That deep, dark uncomfortableness, that's impermanent. That's impermanent as well. So just have confidence and keep walking. We have a similar question from both Joy and Amina. So would you be able to share with us about the Thai greeting you use at the start and end of each class? Oh, sure. So at the beginning of the, each class and at the end, I do this. And I say, so the hands coming together in the prayer position, this is called a Y, W-A-I. That's how I spell it, Y. This is the way that people greet each other and they say goodbye. It's equivalent to a handshake in our culture. So now with COVID, this is a wonderful way to greet people and say goodbye. <laughs> right? I think this is going to be spread all throughout the world now. I'm seeing more and more people do it. So the hands usually come up to where the thumb is just under the nose. And this is a way to show respect to people and kind of bow and kind of show the top of your head, right? So that's the gesture. 
the words sawadi it means hello or welcome but it also means goodbye as well and then for males because i'm a man and i'm speaking i add to the end of it i add cop this makes it polite so when you're speaking in thai you'll hear males this is just a way to make it polite and kind and friendly because it takes the extra effort to put that word at the end of a sentence and then for females if you're a female and you're speaking thai you would add to the end of every one of your sentences you would add ka right it sounds a little bit more feminine ka right ka so if i said sawadee kap and you were a man you would say sawadee kap as well but if you're a female you would say sawadika as a way to say hello or goodbye so this is the greeting in thailand and i just get so used to using it i just use it here in thailand if you watch the news or any kind of broadcast or something like this they always start with sawadika and then they do their news broadcast and then at the end they do sawadika so not that i'm a news broadcaster but we're broadcasting a television show here to a certain degree So I usually just kind of start with sawadikap and end with sawadikap, just as a way of like a warm greeting and a warm goodbye. Okay, we have no more questions. Okay, so this middle way is all about bringing the mind to the middle, and you've got many different topics that you're going to need to do this on, whether it's finances, whether it's your personal health, whether it's your career. Whether it's spending time with your children or your partner, whether it's spending time with yourself, right, spending time alone, whether it's taking care of your house, whatever it is, there's multiple topics out there that you've got to find the middle, right? And I gave you guys an example about this a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about the audio book. When I created the audio book, I thought it was going to be a two or three week project. Well, it turned into be about a two or three month project, right? So, if you go into any particular effort with certain expectations and wanting something really badly, when it's not going your way, the mind's going to be discontent. But if you sit back and really do nothing and take no effort whatsoever, you don't have this mental alertness, this mental vigor. Then that's not going to be good either. So on all of these different topics, you got to come to the middle. And when we were doing this audiobook project, it didn't take two or three weeks. It ended up taking more and more and more and more time. And then we got to the point where we had pretty much recorded everything, and we listened back to it, and we we're like, you know what? We could have done this part better. We could have done that part better. We could have done this better. We could have added this. But then we were like, you know. If we start making all these changes, we'll be here for six months or a year. Keep making these changes. So we're like, you know what? We did it. We did a good job. We made a good, decent audio book. So let's just be content with that. It is what it is. It was a two or three month project. Just be satisfied with what is. Just be content with what is. And that's what the middle way is: is finding that middle on all these different topics. Bringing the mind to the middle, spending time with certain people in your life, spending time alone, your finances, all the different things is finding that middle, 
rather than craving and having that strong drive to do something, or rather than be lethargic and melancholy or lazy, complacent, find that middle. And that middle's always changing. So you got to be aware of it. Okay, so it's a very simple teaching, but you can apply it in multiple places in your life. And perhaps you're already starting to think about places where you can apply it. So this week and for the rest of your life, as you do things, as you are conducting certain affairs, as you're in certain relationships, as you're involved in certain projects, find that middle, whatever that is. And that even comes to our class, right? What we noticed is having one hour class sessions, it wasn't quite enough time to really sink into the teachings and give people enough time to ask questions. But we realized like three hours is kind of like too long. You know, people start drifting off by that point. So Max and I have kind of realized like the two hour mark, two and a half hours is kind of like in the middle. And that's what we've been going with. And I want to thank you guys for sticking around and learning for the last two hours and 15 minutes, because that's the middle for these talks in these classes. It seems like we always kind of end up right there at the two hour mark, two hours, two hours, 15, sometimes two and a half, but not always. So we don't really have this strong yearning or expectation because there's certainly been classes that finish after an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, right? And then there was one or two that went to three hours. But for the middle, it seems like it's right around two hours. So thank you guys for joining. Thank you for continuing to learn Gautama Buddha's teachings. Dive into this chapter if you haven't already. Look back to some of the previous chapters since this is kind of a more simple teaching. It kind of gives you time to kind of reflect and really soak in the teachings that we covered so far because next Sunday we're going to be diving into the five precepts really deep teachings there in the five precepts in the week after that the three poisons another really deep chapter the week after that the natural law of gamma another really deep chapter so three weeks of really deep 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 chapters so take this week as a little break if you want, or go back and kind of look over things that you've already studied, or focus really deeply on your breathing mindfulness meditation practice and your loving kindness meditation practice. Really get that well-rooted this week. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing chanting. So if you'd like to join by live streaming, you can, or if you'd like to join the Zoom session, I'm gonna be doing some individual coaching to help you guys practice your chanting. So if you haven't been practicing chanting since the last time I taught it, definitely practice that. And I'm gonna do some individual coaching where Max will be chanting, James will be chanting, you know, Bill, maybe we get some other people to do some chanting, maybe Judith or Joy or Mercia would like to do some chanting. And we can all hear the kind of work that you've been doing. We can kind of see how your chanting's going and I can give you some pointers as we go. So have a really wonderful week. Enjoy your time. Be very loving, kind, caring, compassionate, and friendly with everybody you see. Be very, very respectful to everyone around you. And all of this is very good for you and your practice. 
even if other people are being disrespectful and hostile, don't worry about that. You be polite. You be respectful. You be friendly. You be kind. It's all about your practice. What other people are doing is their practice. No matter what they're doing, whether they're being friendly or whether they're being hostile, you be loving, kind, and compassionate, respectful all the time. So we'll see you in our next class session. Have a very wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.